4: Folks, Blackstar Network is...
1: I'm real, uh, revolutionary right now.
5: Support this man, black media. He
6: makes sure that our stories are told.
4: I uh, thank you for being the voice of black America, Rollins.
6: Hey, buddy, I
7: love y'all. All momentum we have now...
4: September 23rd 2022 coming up on Roland Martin unfiltered streaming live on the Black Star Network Kansas City civil rights groups have long known their police department had high incidence of violence against black Latino folks and racist hiring practices now the Department of Justice is investigating we be joined by the president and CEO of the Great Urban League of Great Kansas City Gwen Grant and also National Urban League. National President CEO Mark Morial. Folks uh, and an amended autopsy report says Elijah McClain's death was caused by being injected with ketamine by paramedics after being forcibly restrained. we Will share those details with you. A former Illinois police chief is charged with murdering a black man after a brief car chase. In Mississippi, a white man has been indicted by the Justice Department on federal hate crime and arson charges for burning a cross to intimidate a black family. Thursday, Congress members met with faith leaders to discuss Congress's responsibility to act on voting rights, living wages, and health care for the poor. I'll talk to California Representative Ro Connor who was at that meeting, to find out if they have come up with a plan of action. And in our education matters segment Texas Southern University has a new student success satellite center in Arlington. We'll talk with Ron Price, a member of the TSU Board of Regents, and the six Florida A&M students. Uh, they are suing the state of Florida for, for saying that, for, that Florida A&M has been cheated out of more than $1 billion from the state. Plus... We'll show you what Reggie Hutland and Oprah had to say from Wednesday screening of the Sydney Pointy documentary that will be that we can watch right now on Apple+. Plus. Folks, it is time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Let's go. He's
2: got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fat, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. to news to politics
4: The Kansas City, Missouri Police Department is the subject of an investigation led by the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. On Monday, the DOJ notified the Department of its probe into employment practices. Uh, we talked to Kansas City Mayor Quentin Lucas on Tuesday. Tonight, let's talk with the President and CEO of the Urban League of Greater Kansas City, Gwen Grant, and Mark Morial, the President and CEO of the National Urban League. Gwen, I want to start with you. Y'all, We were there in Kansas City talking about this very issue. Folks in Kansas City have been calling for the DOJ to step in. Uh, Just your initial reaction of that decision. And also the mayor's interview on Tuesday where he was highly critical of this uh, five-member commission. Uh, And they pretty much, uh, other than him coming on this show talking about it, they've acted like nothing has actually happened.
5: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Roland. Uh, The the Board of Police Commissioners is a continuous disappointment for us and we're really excited about learning that the DOJ will conduct this Patterns and Practices investigation into uh, discriminatory hiring and uh, promotion practices within KCPD. Uh, As you know, when you were here, we do not have local control of our police department. So without the DOJ intervention and oversight, we don't have an opportunity to redress because we can't control the behavior of that board. Um, We are in the process of hiring, uh, looking to hire a new police chief, and the board is really not being collaborative or inclusive with the community in that endeavor. And a few days ago, the Kansas City Star published an editorial saying they should pull back. Like, this is not the time to bring in a new chief when you have a department that is being investigated by the DOJ and the Board of Police Commissioners is not engaging in any form of community collaboration.
4: Uh, Mark, you were the mayor of New Orleans. Uh, you There were issues with the police department and when you were mayor. Still are issues there. Uh, it, it is stunning to me, in the conversation we have with the mayor on, on Tuesday, it is still stunning to me that you have this commission, five members appointed by, the first of all, four appointed by the governor. The mayor sits on it and they have been completely non-responsive to the citizens uh, of that particular uh, 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 city, and it is if their whole deal is, we don't give a damn what any of y'all think, oh, by the way, though, uh, keep sending your taxpayer money to fund the department. We run it, you don't.
8: Roland, the system in Kansas City is a modern form of colonialism, where the state, and this is a legacy of the 1800s and a legacy of slavery, Uh, And the fact that uh, Kansas City uh, and Missouri were divided during the Civil War, with part of the state siding with the North and the rest siding with the South, that has led to the fact that the citizens of Kansas City do not control their own police department. It was that way in St. Louis, and state law changed. And the state of Missouri should voluntarily give the people of Kansas City control over their department so that their mayor that their elected leaders can make the decision so that the people of Kansas City can hold them accountable. Now, this investigation by Kristen Clark and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department is taking place because Gwen Grant and I asked for this investigation to take place. And I want to just say how pleased I am that Merrick Garland and Kristen Clark responded Uh, to a letter from the Kansas City Urban League and a number of community leaders in Kansas City asking for this investigation. Now, let's talk about the Kansas City Police Department. A high rate of excessive and deadly uh, force incidents against Black and Latino citizens, compelling evidence of constitutional violations, discriminatory patterns and practices in hiring, promotions, and the handling of community complaints and the lack of accountability. So in this instance, this is why civil rights laws and civil rights advocacy is so crucial when we join with Gwen, who's been an outstanding leader in assembling an impressive coalition to call for this investigation. But it is time for the Kansas City Police Department to change. And it's time for the state of Missouri, its governor and legislature to give home rule, or if you will, local control, back to or to the citizens of Kansas City.
4: Um, this is, uh, go to my iPad, this is the Kansas City Star on Tuesday. And this is what is crazy to me here, Gwen, where the mayor says that that was a police board meeting on Monday. And they didn't even bother to discuss this. Here you have the Department of Justice sending you a letter saying, we are going to be investigating your police department about its racial hiring practices. And here the mayor, and let's be real clear, the chair of the board is a black man, a pastor. Y'all pull his photo up and let me know when you have it. And they don't even discuss it. I mean, I'm sorry. This to me is an abomination. And have y'all heard from this brother? Now, leave it on him, because he's the chair of the board. Uh, Have y'all actually heard? And he's a pastor. Have y'all heard anything from him? Is he talking to anybody black?
5: No, not that I'm aware of. You know, not, no. he has been a huge disappointment throughout this struggle, this fight with the police department. He's been a gatekeeper. He has just been carrying the water of the racist police chief and the racist system over which he presides. And it's that's you know, it's really unfortunate. I do want to put in here too, Roland, that the Missouri legislature, Mark is talking about how the, the state should pull back. Well, the state is doing the exact opposite. The Missouri legislature just recently passed legislation that would now require the city of Kansas City, Missouri, to increase its level of funding to the police department and by a state mandate to raise our funding floor from 20% to 25%. So we have an initiative on the ballot on November 8th that uh, to vote no against Amendment 4, to stop this egregious government overreach into the operating, uh, the affairs of Kansas City government. It's just unconscionable uh, that we would be required to fund a police department that we do not control and that the state legislature who actually filed this legislation doesn't even live in Kansas City, Missouri. It's exactly as, as Mark stated, it's 21st century colonialism and it needs to stop.
4: And that, to me, right there, Marcus, what I don't understand—I—I I, I can't imagine being a taxpayer in a city, and you have no control over who gets hired as the police chief, no control over uh, anything in the department. And essentially, the folks down uh, in the state capital, of Missouri, they are—they are, they are in control of the police department. And the mayor was on the other day, and if I'm correct, he said that 70 percent of the general fund in Kansas City goes to public safety, police and fire, 70%. And the the citizens of this city have no say-so over anything dealing with the police department. It's essentially four governor, Republican governor-appointed people who control the entire police department.
8: Well, I'm glad, Orlin, yes. as as you, you, you're spotlighting this injustice of uh, if you will, an assault on local control. But as you know, over the years, red state legislatures and governors have sought to mess with, undercut, undermine, and take power from quote unquote blue cities or predominantly African American uh, cities across the South. There was an effort uh, years ago for the state of Georgia to try to take control of the Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. There was an effort back in the 1980s in Louisiana where the state legislature passed a law to take the airport, take the zoo away from the city of New Orleans. It was thwarted uh, because my father, at the time, the mayor had the presence of mind uh, to sue uh, the state and invalidate those statutes. This is a disturbing pattern, and this is egregious, that uh, the state of Missouri would continue to practice political interference. So Gwen and others have lifted this issue, and this issue has to be lifted because it is part of what is wrong uh, with uh, the situation in Missouri. I am confident that if the citizens of Kansas City, the elected officials in Kansas City, had an opportunity, they'd clean up the mess at the Kansas City Police Department. They would clean up uh, the corruption. They would clean up the discrimination. They would clean up uh, the brutality. So we at the National Urban League join with Gwen to, eff- in an effort to elevate this issue to a more national stage, but uh, make it clear that the local community is united. I was in Kansas City with Gwen. The local community across the board is united in saying we should control our own department, and they're also united in their efforts to fix the problem that the Kansas City Police Department has become.
4: Uh, Gwen, obviously you have this investigation going on. You talked about that ballot initiative and when we were there, that was one of the issues we talked about. How is that going in terms of mobilizing, galvanizing people? Uh, are they responding?
5: Yes, we are really gearing up to have a robust campaign the challenge is it requires a statewide vote and Kansas City is the only city targeted through this legislation. So it's hard to Mobilize wait 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 wait
4: wait 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 <laughs> wait Okay, I'm really clear. So there's a ballot initiative That specifically applies to funding of the Kansas City Police
5: Department that's, yes. a, that's a statewide ballot initiative it's because it requires a constitutional amendment uh, it's tied to the Hancock amendment of the Missouri Constitution it requires a statewide vote but it only targets Kansas City but Here's the, here's the key. The, the way the ballot language is uh, written, it is vague, it is biased, and unfortunately the city of Kansas City, Missouri, missed its opportunity to challenge the ballot language, which is unconscionable as well. So, so, so this ballot certainly.
4: initiative will require an increase of funding that goes to the police department from the, from the taxpayers of Kansas City but it's going to be voted by everybody in the state. Right.
5: But But it doesn't say that. So here's the deal, Roland. The the ballot language does not clearly state that this applies only to Kansas City, which means that it is dangerous for all other cities across the state. In effect, this ballot language, if this passes, the state legislature has the authority for the next three years to, to set the funding levels for any police department in the state. But initially it's written the way it's written in its narrow terms after it passes they will be targeting only Kansas City. But the language is so vague that truly they could actually engage in government overreach across the state. They can go back and target St. Louis, which is another city where they were able to get their control of their police department about five years ago. But there's also talk of them now wanting to take that control back from St. Louis. They have a black mayor in St. Louis. We're talking about the two Largest cities in the state, the two largest cities with the highest population of people of color, and they want to control only those. Now, out here in the, in the rural areas, in you know, in the predominantly white areas, there's no um, attempt to intervene or any efforts uh, at government overreach to tell the local people how to spend their tax dollars.
8: Mark, I think you want to make a comment there. The only thing I'd say, Roland, is uh, Gwen is so right and uh in you and black America and all people in this nation who favor and light, love fairness and justice should be absolutely outraged at the structure and the system in Kansas City. I was shocked uh, because this is so anachronistic. It's such a throwback uh, and it robs the people of Kansas City uh, from any say over the operations of the police department. This is why home rule for cities is so important. And uh, in many places you have home rule, which protects the city from being intruded on by state government, by the state legislature, uh, and prevents them and gives local control over police and fire and schools and other basic fundamental needs. So uh, we are, uh, we wanna lift people up Uh, to understand this referendum. If you have friends, if you have relatives anywhere in Missouri, weigh in. Ask them to vote uh, on this referendum. And, Gwen, we want people to vote no, correct? Vote no. Right.
5: Vote no on Amendment 4. Vote no on Amendment
8: 4. And we need as much energy behind that as possible. So, Roland, we'll be mobilizing We'll be supporting. We'll be doing everything we can on this. And I really appreciate you raising this issue and giving Gwen and I an opportunity to really explain to people that you've got a department with a history of brutality, a history of discriminatory practices, but the citizens of Kansas City can't hire nor fire through their representatives of police chief. It's left to a board run by the governor.
4: Well, I'll say this here. I also fundamentally believe black pastors they should be moving against this pastor bishop mark tolbert go to my ipad they should because this this black man needs to answer to black people how can this black man be a bishop of a church and chairs the police commission and he doesn't even bother to bring up this doj uh letter in the police meeting in fact it's been now four days since the DOJ made this announcement. He has made no public comment whatsoever about any of this. And so, uh, again, I would have really loved to see black pastors across Kansas City, Missouri, but also across the country d- demand this brother say, when are you going to speak to the issue and when are you going to represent black folks and you the chair of that board? D- this, is, this is where you, we've got to be willing to check folk Cause again, uh, everybody who yo- got the same skin as you ain't kin, and so we got to be willing to challenge folks. And this, this so-called bishop needs to answer how he is not saying anything. Mark, that has
8: to happen. No, it's good. He's got to be called out. I'm glad you're uh, lifting up his name, showing his picture, because uh, he's not being responsive. He's being irresponsible to the community and. Uh, you know, people like that should not be in positions of public trust. It's outrageous that the board wants to, quote, not talk about it with the idea that if we don't talk about it, it may go away. It will not go away. Uh, We will support this continuing investigation uh, and and do everything in our power to hold uh, the Kansas City Police Department accountable. But let's get the mobilization on Amendment 4. That's right. Uh, because that's how we can structurally change the system. And we need to continue to do this and recognize that this trend of states and Republican governors uh, interfering in and controlling the affairs and activities of some of our great American cities uh, is absolutely wrong.
4: All right, then. Uh, you absolutely right. All right,
5: Gwen Mark is absolutely right. Thank you, Mark, for your support, and thank you, Roland, uh, for lifting us up here in Kansas City. Thank you,
4: Roland, always. All right, Gwen and Mark, I appreciate it. Thank Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Take care, folks. Going to bring in my panel right now. Uh, let's talk about uh, this uh, very issue here uh, again, uh, and it really does piss me off that this this brother, this pastor, has said nothing, has literally <laughs> said nothing. Matt Manning, civil rights attorney, Uh, Michael Imhotep hosts the African History Network show, Brianna Cartwright, political strategist. Uh, Matt, I'll start with you. I mean, nothing. Nothing. Um, When when the Kansas City uh, Star did that big uh, uh, multiple-part series on fundamental problems in the police department, nothing. It was as if, no big deal. And and this this is, I mean, members of his church should be offended that he is the pastor of the church, the leader of the church, and he refuses to say anything publicly about the racism allegations in the
9: Kansas City Police Department? I'm with you. And especially as a steward of the board and the board's work, I think that it's especially problematic that he isn't saying anything. As a lawyer, I do have to concede I don't know what his attorneys have advise him to do, and I don't know if they've advised him not to make any public statement. The problem is, this is an issue of public concern. And so this is a, public, he is a public... He is appointed by the governor. Yeah. This is yeah. a public commission. Right, that's correct. And that's, that's another huge part of the problem, right? One of the biggest parts of the problem that I think Mark was addressing is that, you know, you really have a federalism issue as it relates to the state trying to control a local you know, jurisdiction in terms of their ability to oust their police and make sure that the police are doing the right thing. I mean, the fact that that's still the case in 2022 is abhorrent, especially where, you know, it's being weaponized against a city of primarily black people or where black people are running the city. So, you know, I think that's a huge issue. And I think Bishop Tolbert is probably hiding behind advice or you know, some desire to not be involved in the fray, but it really becomes a moral issue. Because if you are a religious leader, you're also a moral leader of the community, and you can't let your people be suffering at the hands of uh, reckless and racist police and not doing anything to remedy that and speak to the issue to let the people know that you're working on their behalf. The, the thing for me,
4: Brianna, again, you are the chair of this commission. You are appointed by the governor, and your posture is... I'm not commenting on anything. And, and here's the whole deal. that There's nothing, there is absolutely nothing. I can't think of anything legal. Where, first, let's be real clear. The mayor is a member of this commission. He talked. So, so clearly, there's nothing, there's no legalities here where a member of the commission cannot talk when one of the five members has talked about it.
10: Absolutely, as you stated, all skin folks aren't kin folks, okay? And I think one of the main issues we have is the fact that they're appointed by the governor and, 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 and for us to, to realize who the governor is. And so they pick out these Uncle Toms to reinforce discrimination among us. Um, there now,
4: hold been- up, hold up, hold up, hold up. I don't allow <laughs> Uncle Tom's sellouts or stuff along those lines. And we can call him trifling, we can call them. I, I I, we can call. We can call them pathetic, sorry, no good for nothing. Uh, but I, I don't allow those terms to be used. Go ahead.
10: Okay. Well, you can uh, take all those synonyms for what I was really saying. Um, and the the issue is this has been ongoing, not just um, in Kansas. This is ongoing a lot of places in in America, including Florida. Um, and so I hope that other states come. Uh, against this. I do think that elections, uh, I do think they need to vote no, because it's important to have an election. It's important for the local community to get involved. It's important for them to decide who's the police chief versus appointed. Um, We see these issues over and over again. And, you know, we talk about how there's the police, you know, um, decide who's hiring within the police force. And then there's discrimination uh, within the community. And so there's a lot of if, if the hiring and the promotion is in itself discriminatory, of course that's going to affect us being killed in the streets because there's not enough training and so forth, and it keeps going on and on and on. But they can say, oh, no, we weren't being discriminatory. We have a black man heading this. And, and, and it's, it's able to pass the buck. And, and really, as, as Matthew said, um, the fact is he's supposed to be a moral leader. He is supposed to pastor in the Lord's work. And so for him to be okay, to be utilized in a way to uphold discriminatory practices, it's just
4: awful. Well, um, uh, uh, I'm about to sit here uh, and expand this thing just a little bit uh, further here, Michael. Um, mm-hmm. Someone on our YouTube channel, uh, Damon, thanks for pointing this out. This same Bishop Tobert is the second right. presiding bishop of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the world with two million members. If your church is a member of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, you should be demanding, here's his photo right here, you should be demanding uh, that he say something, you should be demanding that the leadership of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World uh, speak out against uh, the racism in the Kansas City Police Department, since clearly uh, Bishop Tolbert uh, wants to be quiet as hell.
11: Uh, absolutely. this is this is leverage. so you you come from the uh, national Pentecostal Pentecostal uh, organization. Uh, you have leverage there. you have leverage from his uh, from his church members also. but but let's keep in mind that the reason why the outside of possibly his counsel telling him to not make any comments, which probably doesn't make sense. But outside of that, this is probably why the governor put him in the position in the first place. They, 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 they know how to pick them. The, the white supremacists know how to pick them. They know which one of us to put in place to to to, to oppress the other ones. So um, I, I remember a, a couple of months ago, two or three months ago, we talked about this similar situation. We talked about the same uh, uh, bishop, Mark Talbert. And we talked about the situation here. And, you know, this is... It. Going back to the article from CNN and Washington Post also has an article on this uh, dealing with the Department of Justice investigating allegations that Kansas City police racially discriminated against black officers. This is extremely important because we're at a pivotal time where a um, um, portion of the White House budget is approved. It's about $35, 36000000000 billion. Part of that... Uh, line item is going to add 100,000 police officers nationwide. Okay. So about 18,500 police departments. Uh, and African Americans who want to be the type of officers we say we want to see, they need to apply to these police departments. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we don't have discrimination inside these police departments that, uh, and that um, disproportionately or uh, wrongly discriminates against African American police department uh, police officers, keeping yep. them out of the police departments or punishing them when they're in the police department doing the right thing. Also, so this is an example how elections have consequences. If 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 uh, Biden and Harris didn't win, we wouldn't have Merrick Garland. We wouldn't have Kristen Clark and they wouldn't be filing these charges here today.
4: Yeah, but this is also why you need to oust that governor uh, and appoint folks yes. who are real. All right, folks, hold tight it one
11: second.
4: Hold tight one second, gotta to go to break, we come back. Uh, we're gonna talk about uh, Florida A&M lawsuit. Six students are suing the state of Florida, saying they have, the school has been cheated out of upwards of $2 billion in state funding. That's one story. Also. The autopsy of Elijah McClain uh, shows some uh, shameful details about what happened to that young man uh, when he died at the hands of authorities uh, in uh, Colorado. So folks, a lot we're going to be covering here on the show. Stay tuned. Don't forget, download the Black Star Network app available on all platforms, Apple, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV, and of course, join our Bring the Funk fan club, your dollars make it as possible. What's to cover the news, cover the issues that matter to us. Tomorrow we're going to be in Warren County, North Carolina, where they eat where they buy protection agency is opening up uh, a major office there. We'll be live streaming that particular event. I'll be on the ground there. So if you want to join, send check in money orders to PO Box 57196. Washington, D.C., uh, 20037-0196 Cash App. It's DollarSide RM Unfiltered. PayPal is rmartin Martin Unfiltered. Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is rolling at Roland at Unfiltered.com. We'll be right back.
12: When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, Our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
13: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where
14: America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
6: Hatred on the streets. A horrific scene. A white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence.
4: White people are losing their damn mind.
12: When we invest in ourselves, we all shine. Together, we are black beyond measure.
15: Hey, I'm Antonique Smith. Hey, I'm Arnaz Jane. Hi, this is Cheryl Lee Ralph, and you are watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. I mean, could it be any other way? Really, it's Roland Martin.
4: Florida a m students uh, are suing the state of Florida, saying their university is, is being shortchanged when it comes to funding. In a class-action lawsuit, uh, the students allege decades of discriminatory underfunding of the public uh, historically black university. They claim the University of Florida received a larger state appropriation per student than FAMU from 1987 to 2020, amounting to a shortfall of roughly $1.3 billion. This comes on the heels of a Forbes story uh, that detailed uh, the university uh, not receiving uh, or, or should have been should have been getting about two billion dollars Joining us now to the lawyers who filed the lawsuit on behalf of the students Barbara J. Hart and Bobby Brown glad to have both of you on the show so for, first off um, let let let's sort of walk walk through this here um, and Typically when we have these lawsuits courts say well who has standing so explain us? how these students, by them filing the lawsuit, they have the standing. Because Florida A&M hasn't filed the suit, obviously because they're a state university. Very similar to the lawsuit that took place here in, uh, took place in Maryland, where a lawsuit was filed on behalf of the four public HBCUs. The schools were not involved, but I know for a fact the schools welcomed that particular lawsuit. Uh, I'm quite sure privately, Florida A&M also welcomes this lawsuit.
16: Well, thank you for that. Um, the standing issue will be litigated, I'm quite confident, but we feel that the uh, students uh, have an acute um, deprivation of the, of the equal funding. And uh, the students talk really um, quite tangibly about their experiences in the dorms and the way they see the facilities and the struggles that their professors have with uh, getting basic equipment. So the students are really experiencing the underfunding, um, and that's a cognizable injury that gives you standing. And we feel that uh, the students are are the ones that are are best able to really, they love the school, they're proud of being at the school, and uh, they're actually experiencing um, the disparity in the facilities, which is all the way that the, the disparity in the funding manifests itself. And so uh, we we feel confident that they have standing under the law.
4: Um, Bobby, I referenced the what happened here in Maryland. They sued during the testimony. Um, uh, it came out what, what experts said uh, they were they were they lost upwards of two billion dollars. Eventually, that was a settlement uh, that was signed. Uh, the state came up with five hundred twenty-two million dollars. Uh, but also, I think back to the suit Alvin Chambliss won for Mississippi. Uh, as y'all have put this together, uh, did y'all look to the Maryland uh, uh, suit, the Mississippi suit, uh, in terms of uh, looking at how to file this suit in Florida? Absolutely,
17: and and I'll defer more to who is leading our litigation team, Barbara, and talking about just how much research we did with both of those cases. And what I will say is, beyond just the cases, in terms of understanding the student situation, getting to be uh, in the environment, being right there in Tallahassee, where one university, Florida A&M University, is right across the train tracks from Florida State University, getting a true understanding and a feel for uh, beyond just experiential knowing. Growing up in Florida and knowing people that went to Florida A&M, knowing people that went to Florida State, um, I wanted the firm also to have a, a really on the 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 ground, on the boots on the ground sort of feel to what. This case was all about and the injustices that we were trying to overcome as a firm, uh, and, I, and I'll allow Barbara. I, I don't know if you want to talk about the level of research, but indeed, in, in both both cases, were examples for us, and uh, both uh, in terms of what, how we wanted to approach the case, and, and, and sort of the standing uh, question that you posed initially. Sure, Barbara,
4: go ahead.
16: Great. Well, you know, Bobby's too modest, but. Um... The the standing issue, I'm not troubled by at all. It really just requires actual injury, and we are confident on that. And, you know, I think in so many things, um, we all stand on the shoulders of what uh, other people have fought before um, to establish. And so we do, we do look to the history of other litigations. Um, we didn't completely emulate it. And of course, we hope um, that we'll see resolution more quickly than the lawsuit in Maryland. I mean, it took 10 years for that to get right.
4: Yeah, actually it's like 13. I mean, that, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, it was 13. And I, I mean, I, I, I covered it for the last six years.
16: Yeah. Um, I forgive me. You're, you're quite correct. So what I'm saying though, is we'd love for it to come, uh, to fruition sooner. Um, the, the students are really terrific people, you know, some undergrads, some graduate students, and they all talk about the ways in which this has impacted them, the stress that they feel. And, um. The challenges in terms of housing and stipends for the graduate students, and and different things where they've experienced faculty that don't even have basic like you know uh, computers that are necessary, uh, whiteboards, things like that that are commonplace in schools. Um, so um, you know it's just it's just uh, the goal will be to try to get somewhere uh, quicker than what occurred in Maryland, but they they certainly uh, plowed the. The, the fields for us in terms of establishing a lot of the law that we will look to.
4: Um, how did this lawsuit happen? Did the students approach uh, y'all? So 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 how did this all come together? And it was over a period of what? How many months?
16: Well, I, um, I'll just go, go ahead.
17: Yeah, I'll let you say more officially how it came together. But even prior to the research that we did, uh, you know. When we decided as a firm to to put resources and put some of our intellectual property within the firm into really establishing a civil rights group, uh, there there were some some obvious cases that we thought would be interesting for our firm. One that had worked so hard in in different areas, but in this particular area, civil rights, um, I, I along with some of the other attorneys went to. Uh, our partners, a group of partners, and said that we think this would be an interesting case. We put a lot of research into it. The article came out subsequent to some of the research that was already done, uh, and then and then the the sort of the process started in order to formalize this and bring in clients. And, uh, and Barbara, I'll throw it to you in terms of you know from a civil procedure standpoint how it came about. But uh, we we've been working on this for a while, and the research that was done by the associates and our litigation team we're very
4: proud of. So you were working on this for a while. So did you find the students or did they come to you? I'm just curious.
16: Well, Bobby has a lot of family and um, friends in Florida. And um, it was just conversations that, uh, as we were examining the issue, uh, conversations led to people that uh, wanted to talk to us. And uh, the students are very committed to this. You, you know, uh, I uh, welcome an opportunity for them to come back in and, and talk with you personally. Uh, They're uh, very fired up to try to, Make it right at the school they love. I love your T-shirt, by the
4: way. Yeah, well, I, I the the first uh, commencement I ever gave was at Florida Memorial, and they get, that was the first. That uh, uh, was also was the first uh, honorary degree I got. Uh, one of the one of the six, and so uh, I decided to go ahead and rock, rock this today. I, I do have a Florida A&M one, uh, but I said I'll rock the Florida Memorial one today since they were the first. Uh, I got some questions from my panelists. Uh, Matt,
9: you're a civil rights attorney. I'll start with you. Let me first say I think this is uh, brilliant how y'all brought this lawsuit um, and thank you for standing up for the students. I guess my question is from a damages standpoint, uh, are you not only asking for uh, or let me ask specifically what are you asking for? Is there a plan in terms of what they want going forward and also recompense for what they haven't gotten since 1987? Um, I know that was part of the model in the other states was you know a payback model. What is your what is your your thought in that respect and what is your thought as it relates to, a per-pupil, you know, deliverable? Because at the end of the day, they want better dorms, better uh, comparable, not only better, but comparable to what you would get at Florida State. So what is the damage model and how did y'all approach kind of uh, conceptualizing that?
16: Well, one thing that uh, we believe is that it's been underfunded for for decades. Um, The statute of limitations will be an issue in terms of how far back we can go on damages. Um, But that is... Um, we want past damages, the underfunding for the years foregone, uh, the years gone past. Um, we want the, the current years, and we want future funding to be at parity. And you know, the money would flow to the school. We're not; these students are committed to the school. They're not looking for their own. I, I, I'm not confused that you were saying per capita. They want they want the money to go to the school to be per capita at parity um, with the other other, uh, land grant schools. And, um, you know, they're, they're not currently, um, how that'll manifest, you know, that's, it's a long road, um, in terms of, you know, housing seems to be something that leapt out, uh, really acutely earlier this year, both the under availability of housing and the conditions in which the housing, uh, was made available to the students. So, um, housing would certainly be one of the issues, um, you know, we also see a duplication in programs, which cannibalizes um, the uh, programs at um, Florida A&M, and we want to put, a, put an end to that. We want the um, showcase programs that Florida A&M has developed um, to be uh, not, not a, um, in competition with FSU programs that are in close proximity. So um, but it's a little it's a little bit premature for us to engage in like specific asks other than what we know the money needs to get square.
4: Uh, Brianna.
10: Yes. Thank you so much for this lawsuit and all the hard work that you're doing. Um, I wish our students could just be students. Um, yeah. I'm so glad that change may come um, from Howard to FAMU. I love to see that they're organizing on these campuses for bettering the um, their schools and our future and our community. How can other students on other campuses start a lawsuit on the historical misallocation of state funding? They can call me or Bobby.
17: Yes, <laughs> please do.
16: How do they call you? <laughs> uh, you know, we are both on the internet. We're at Grant Eisenhofer. I'm Hart at gelaw.com. They can email me, I'll call them right back. I call my clients, I, I love my clients. And Bobby's uh, you know, Bobby is B- as
17: B Brown the... at G-E Law. Same, same, same.
4: Oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, hold on, y'all. Slow down. Barbara, give me your email again.
16: B Hart B-H-A-R-T at G-E Law.com.
4: Bobby? It's B B R O W N at GE law.com all right cool that way because trust me they're gonna start cussing in the chat room like slow down i didn't catch it uh all right uh michael quite your question
11: yes a uh great job uh attorneys and uh you know shout out to those six uh florida a m students who are filing this lawsuit um in reading the article from the washington post um it talks about duplication of uh, programs and how this puts uh, uh, Florida A&M at a disadvantage. Then it also talks about um, in the lawsuit, it claims that the University of Florida received a larger state appropriation per student than FAMU from 1987 to 2020, uh, amounting to a shortfall of roughly $1.3 billion. What was the formula? That uh, have, have you been able to ascertain from the state what formula they use to allocate uh, funds per student to the University of Florida as opposed to FAMU? Uh, I'm trying to figure out. Okay, what's the rhyme or reason here? And is it possible you can give one or two examples of the programs that were duplicated? Also, uh, Attorney Hart mentioned that uh, before um, Brianna's question.
16: The engineering program was duplicated, and. Um, you know, at first blush, that doesn't sound like anything like a problem, but what happens is it undermines the success and the competitiveness of the program at FAMU.
4: That actually was the basis of the Maryland lawsuit. Uh, right. The, the judge actually threw out unequal funding, and she really locked and loaded on the duplication of programs. That's what led to that settlement.
16: I'm with you, and um, and I... I uh, you know, my colleagues really had to uh, get me up to speed on that particular issue because at first blush, you know, it could really look like that's a good thing. You know, to, more engineering mm-hmm. programs. What's the matter with more engineering programs? But what we find is it undermines the school that's already trying to play catch up and is also doing it with less funding. So um, right. it does up undermining the program that's trying to thrive and increase the prestige of the HBCU. so um, it's it's uh, considered the vestiges of uh, separate but equal and we know that was baloney um, and mm-hmm. completely unacceptable. So um, the engineering program is the poster child of that um, and then in terms of the underfunding, we drilled into the um, archives and the budgets that are published. Um, and the um, data that's online, um, our number comes out differently than the Forbes number, which was $1.8 billion. Um, but we uh, believe that that disparity might have to do with inflation, um, and uh, it also, uh, you know, we, we need to err on the side of conservatism. We're not, uh, right. not that there's anything the matter with the press. We love the press. We're allies with the press, um, but uh, we are saying something in a court filing, so we we needed to tick and tie our our numbers so we we uh felt more comfortable with the one point three
9: billion okay, all right Thanks. then, Matt, you have a question right? yeah, one more question so uh attorney Hart, you kind of alluded to this, but the moment I read this lawsuit, I thought about sweat v painter, and you kind of have already you know referenced that, and I was interested in your methodology um as it relates to Uh, the the mediator. So I know y'all are asking for a mediator to help ascertain ways to make it more equitable. And in particular, I know a lot of the issue is prestige, right? The idea that people may choose U of F as opposed to FAMU on the basis of prestige and and other opportunities that FAMU is not able to offer due to the funding disparity. So with with particular respect to the mediator, how are y'all approaching giving that mediator information to help determine how to make it more equitable? I'm very interested in that.
16: Well, unfortunately, this isn't running on a, a racetrack the way that we have seen the mediator happen in some other litigation that people are, are following related to, to confidential top secret uh, documents. This will be a slow process, um, and as I said, ideally not as slow as the Maryland case. Um, but I would expect the first issue will be a motion to dismiss um, from the Board of Governors and the state. Um, where they will contest that we haven't either have we don't have standing or that we haven't stated a claim and that there's no underfunding and they will challenge us. So we are we are a far cry from the mediator, but we do see that as somebody that could facilitate a facilitate an outcome um, where we could address the disparity in funding. And I don't want to suck up all the airtime. I mean, Bobby, if you want to talk about your vision for the mediator, but all I'm trying to say is. Um, it, it might be a long time until we get to a mediation. We are at—we're uh, not out of the starting blocks, really. We're we're serving these papers on the defendants, and um, they're going to have their counter say. And one might think that they're not just going to say, "Oh, we totally agree," right? They're they're going to contest what we've said.
4: All right, and and it's, it's, sorry. No, no, Bobby, go was, ahead, Go ahead.
17: Go ahead. I was just going to add to that, and it's worth noting that. Uh, we, Regardless of of how we get there, there are six amazing amazing plaintiffs here, students uh, that you know are working hard in class. They're, they they a lot of them have jobs that are standing up and to, to do what's right. So uh, whether it be through the, the however the mediator is chosen, we talked about relief. I think the injunctive relief and the idea that p- things are being put in place to make decisions regarding state funding that are sort of like we all understand the concept of the fruit of the poisonous tree is sort of the same thing here. some of the same um, metrics you're using to determine where the funds are allocated are really the sort of the fruits of the the, the seeds being sown uh, for disparate treatment. And so it, with this circular manner in which this is happening, the injunctive relief is just as important and these students are standing up for their, for their peers, for their current students that, that they're in class with, but also for the student that you know is going to apply 20 years from now. And I think that is is the thing to celebrate. And they are very proud of Florida A&M. They're very proud of their university or institution, and this is just a way to make things in our opinion more fair. Uh, FAMU and other HBCUs have done more with less, but just imagine because FAMU has produced amazing individuals, just imagine what they could do with more. When more is just really in this case fair.
4: Uh, And we say fair, black folks in Florida have been paying taxes for a very long time. And so, what you have is you have resources going to build up Florida State, build up University of Florida, build up other institutions, and they have been neglecting black institutions. And we have seen this all across this country where you have HBCUs. Uh, And so, when I was in North Carolina, I I connected um, officials there with Alvin Chambliss and others and saying, hey, uh, you should be considering, uh, have, uh, the state should be considering suing the state, and I, I believe that this should be the objective of lawyers all across the country going after every single state where you have a public HBCU and examining whether they, wh- the funding issue. Uh, a, commission in, a, a committee in Tennessee ruled that Tennessee state had been underfunded to the tune of $500 million. Uh, I'm quite sure that number is actually higher, but again, someone should be filing suit in Tennessee on behalf of Tennessee state to ensure they're able to get that money. And so we appreciate uh, the work that y'all are doing and certainly keep us abreast uh, of this. Like I say, uh, I'm quite familiar with the, with these stories. Uh, we've had Alvin Chambers on this show. We co- covered extensively uh, the, uh, the the Maryland case. I even led a rally in Maryland. So just let me know if y'all need us to come down to Florida uh, to bring a little public pressure. Uh, I own my camera, so I don't have to ask anybody. So we'll be happy to come down there.
16: That's very generous. Thank you.
4: All right, we well, appreciate it. Thanks a so bunch. Folks, for- appreciate you. Thank you. Going to a break. We come back. Uh, we're going to talk about the case of Elijah McClain. What was he shot up with by paramedics? What the autopsy reveals? Also, uh, a former cop of Chicago. Uh, guess what? Gets indicted for the shooting of a black man. And we'll also tell you about the DOJ going after a white man for cross-burning in Mississippi. Some things change, some stay the same. Folks, please support us in what we do. Download the Blackstar Network app, available on all platforms. Uh, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, uh, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV. Also, uh, we would love for you. Uh, to uh, support us in our Bring the Funk Fan Club. Every dollar you give goes uh, to this show to allow us to do what we do. Uh, And so please uh, send your check-in money orders to PO Box 57196, Washington, D.C., 20037-0196. Cash app is dollar sign RM Unfiltered. Uh, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Uh, Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zale is rolling at rollinsmartin.com, rolling at rollingmartinapulture.com. And big shout out to all of our folks who watch us on uh YouTube. Folks, uh, yesterday we hit nine hundred thousand subscribers on our YouTube channel. We launched this show. We started with one hundred Four years later, we've now hit nine hundred thousand, Uh, and so we appreciate all of you who are doing so. Uh, But I would love to have 900,000 downloads of the Black Star Network app. And so uh, please uh, support us in everything that we do. So subscribe to the YouTube channel. Subscribe to the Black Star Network. uh, Download the app, all platforms. Folks, we are building something special here, and we thank all of you for being a part of it. We'll be right back.
12: invest in ourselves we're investing in what's next for all of us growing <laughs> creating making moves that move us all forward together,
3: Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required.
15: Measure. On the next Get Wealthy with me, Deborah Owens, America's Wealth Coach. Are you trying to figure out how to earn more revenue in your business during these volatile times? Learn how to tap into the largest marketplace in the world through government contracting. Our next guest, Akia Hardnet, will be sharing how you can get wealthy through government contracting. We've got a young lady, government uh, assistance to government contracts. She literally was, um, on government assistance when she came to us, and in, in less than a year, she has been winning um, multiple government contracts, and it has changed the trajectory of her family. That's
7: right here, only on Black Star Network.
6: Hatred on the streets, a horrific scene, a white nationalist rally that descended into deadly violence. On that
4: soil. You you will not white people so- are losing their damn minds
11: as he
4: backlash this is the rise of the proud boys and the boogaloo boys america there's going to be more of this
6: this country is getting increasingly racist in its behaviors and its attitudes because of the fear of white people
4: the fear that they're taking our jobs they're taking our resources they're taking our women this is white fear.
12: When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black beyond measure.
8: Y'all know who
1: Roland Martin is. He got the ascot on, he do the news. It's fancy news. Keep it rolling, right here, rolling.
5: Roland Martin.
15: (laughs) Right now. You are watching Roland Martin, unfiltered. I mean, could it be any other way? Really, it's Roland Martin.
4: Rockwell Chappelle was last seen in Milwaukee on July 23rd. The 17-year-old is 5 feet 4 inches tall, weighs 135 pounds, with black hair and brown eyes. Anyone with information about Destiny Rockwell uh, Chappelle should call the Milwaukee Police Department at 414-933-4444, 414-933-4444. All right, folks, um, we talk a lot on this show about uh, the poor in this country. We talk about what is happening. On Capitol Hill right now, you see Democrats amassing the votes to pass a a bill that will deal with funding for police. We saw uh, the previous bills that were passed. And Reverend Dr. William Barber uh, has been asking this question, which is, I I think, is a uh, critical one, where he talks about uh, what folks can do. And this was a tweet uh, that he sent out uh, a little bit earlier today, and this is what he said. He said, why is it that Dems and some Republicans can come together to pass a policing bill, but can't pass living wages, voter protections, and extended child tax credit. Well, that was a uh, meeting on Capitol Hill uh, about this very issue with faith leaders. Uh, uh, for my next guest was actually uh, in the meeting to give us an update on what happened there. Can we actually see some movement uh, on that? Congressman Rokan, I'm glad to have you back on the show. So, all right, what happened? What was the conversation? What's the outcome? I'd gone down to Reverend Barber's church and he said,
18: why don't you call up 50 clergy leaders and have members of Congress listen to what people actually want. And they were very clear that we've got to get a living wage. We got to at least get a vote on it, that we need to get the child tax credit. As Reverend Barber put it, uh, we tried it. We did it in the American Rescue Plan. It reduced poverty 50 percent. And it's as if we're teasing people that we're taking it back. I mean, we know it works. We know it reduces poverty. We need to make that permanent. And then we need voting rights. And uh, he was very blunt. Uh, we heard the testimony of uh, a young woman in Baltimore who talked about a sheriff coming uh, to her apartment, a single mother, uh, her being basically evicted, staying in a motel room because uh, the child tax credit expired. So. Those of us who listened and participated are really going to push for another vote uh, with the speaker. And then, of course, the issue is the Senate. We've passed some of these policies in the House. We need the Senate uh, to vote on it.
4: Uh, and uh, the point that he makes, I think, is a critical one. Because uh, when you hear uh, Senator Schumer and others say, oh, we're going to keep you know another bite of the apple, another bite of the apple, well, let's see the same thing when it comes to the poor in this country, when it comes to voting rights. People, I can tell you right now, African Americans want to see some movement, especially on the voting bill. Uh, Also, I've been saying, why in the heck uh, aren't Democrats uh, coming back uh, and putting the George Floyd Justice Act? Uh, 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 on the table. Uh, it's, it already passed the House, but now the challenge should be, and I've said this uh, to even some of the family members, they should be publicly saying to President Joe Biden, call a meeting at the White House, tell McConnell, tell Lindsey Graham, tell Tim Scott to be at that meeting and sit across from those families and say why they're not moving in the George Floyd mm-hmm. Justice Act.
18: Well, and that would be powerful. but here, And here's the thing. The Republicans, you know this, when they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they don't just vote once. They repeal. They vote on the repealing 70, 80 times. And I don't understand why the Democrats uh, can't have the same passion. I mean, we ought to vote on voting rights not just once out of the House. Let's keep passing it. Let's keep telling the Senate to put pressure on it. Let's vote uh, on the George Floyd bill. Uh, and, and put pressure to, to get that passed and, and let's vote on living wage again.
4: Uh, obviously, you're going to hear folks say, oh, well, you know, we're now uh, in the fall and we don't have much time. Well, let's see here. Today is September 23rd. Last I checked, the United States Senate confirmed a Supreme Court justice pretty damn quick before an election.
18: We have time. We figure out the t- to, how to get things done when we want to get things done. Uh, and we certainly have the time. I mean, it doesn't take that long to put something on, on the floor. I think let's just be candid, Roland. And this is about what is the message that we want to go into the midterms with. And there are those of us who are saying that we can't take people's votes for granted or poor or low income. Those are our voters. We can't take uh, black people for granted. And, we, yeah, OK, fine. The frontliners wanted a police funding bill, uh, but we also need to deliver uh, for working people and for uh, 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 the, the African American community, and that means let's go into the midterms of voting on these key issues. And I, I think that's the the key thing is to convince the party that these are issues we need to highlight going into the election.
4: Uh, and on that particular point you just made there, you have a lot of uh, you have a lot of those frontliners. Again, the Democratic Party does a whole lot to protect them. But here's the whole deal. Uh, They aren't the only people represented in Congress. You also need voters voting in these statewide races for the United States Senate.
18: You know, and you need a turnout in their districts. I mean, many of them need uh, poor people, well folks, who in many parts comprise a third of the electorate in our districts, half of the electorates, and in the states, they need them to turn out. And they're not going to turn out if they don't see that we're fighting for a livable wage. They're not going to turn out if they think, OK, we did the child tax return and now that money is not coming back. And they're certainly not going to turn out if they don't see us fighting like hell for voting rights. I mean, uh, you know, as Reverend Barber said, we promised John Lewis that we would do this. We, we promised. He was, as you know, sick the last few months of his life. We said this is going to be his legacy. And so, OK, so we took a vote and then uh, the Senate hasn't voted on it and we said okay they're not going to do the filibuster it just seems we're, we don't have enough fight on it. this is such a a, a basic issue uh, and th- you know they rewrote it they weakened it and they still didn't vote on it in the Senate uh,
4: that is absolutely crazy. Uh, so um, okay you had that meeting with 50 members what's next?
18: Well the meeting I think the president should meet with the the, the clergy I mean the, the the clergy in that room, Uh, who are 50 leaders, and I appreciate that they met with us in Congress, but they represent millions of voters. And I think the president meeting with them, one, it would take back faith for the Democratic Party, the real faith, the faith that Dr. Barber and others talk about, which is standing with the poor, standing for justice. Uh, We need to be talking about that, not let just the Republicans have faith. And I think the president needs to look some of these folks in the eye and, and say, here is our plan. Here's what we're going to do before the end of the election. Here's what I'm committed to doing in the next two years. Uh, but he should have a meeting with them. I, and that's uh, uh,
4: what I have been pushing for with the White House. All right. Uh, well, look, hopefully it happens and we see some action. Representative Rocano, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for having me back. Good to our panel here. Brianna, I'm going to start with you. The point that he made there, Democrats are so protective of these frontliners, these Democrats who are in, you know, purple districts or some that lean Republican. And frankly, it pisses off a lot of other people that they are are just, you know, giving everything to them as opposed to uh, really looking at the broader agenda. I think that
10: we talking about the broader agenda. um, I think that we can say everybody should get behind helping children. Um, I think it's too divisive. And I do think even in, you know, you say the red districts and trying the purple that we're scared and we're going to just promote what we have done and not get behind in these last months to do even more, um, I don't think it needs to stay um, that way. I do think that we can move the needle more with an actual uh, welfare net. Um, And I think that you can understand we Um, As Democrats can also talk to Republicans to make sure they understand the commonality of it. Um, As it was stated in the beginning, we talked about how we can get around um, gun control now um, barely. But, you know, we have conversations about that um, where we should be able to have conversations about helping our our poor. And I think when they realize that, you know, it's the Christian thing to do and Republicans love to be Christians, um, we can have um, different set of conversations but it doesn't need to necessarily be about, um, red, blue, um, purple, but us as, as family members, right. And helping our community.
4: Michael. Uh,
11: <laughs> I don't have that much faith in white people, but okay. Um, so when we look at, um, the George Floyd Justin policing act and representative Roe and thanks for having this interview also Roland. Um, Yes, it passed the House of Representatives um, in August, uh, uh, March third, 2021, by a vote of 220 to 212. They should try it again in the Senate. I think they should do use the strategy that Representative James Clyburn said. Clyburn said if uh, qualified immunity is the sticking point, he said take qualified immunity out of the bill, get the rest of the bill passed now, come back and get qualified immunity later. Uh, because you need 60 votes in the Senate, which means you need 10 Republicans. So, yes, they should try again, but there's a difference between trying to just say to voters that you tried and actually really trying to get the bill passed. Those are two different things. You need 10 Republicans. So if you're going to get the George Floyd Justice and Police Act passed in the Senate, you're going to have to do it a different way, okay? And then after the 2022 midterm elections, then you could come back and get qualified immunity passed. But we have to use a different... uh, The the structure of the Senate is much different than the House. So you're gonna have to use a different strategy oftentimes in the Senate to to get that 60-vote threshold than you do in the House of Representatives, which is just a simple majority. Matt.
9: I think it's abhorrent that we even have to have this conversation. People shouldn't have to beg for basic stuff. If, you know, 10% of the population is living in poverty and one in six are uh, not getting a livable wage, it's absurd that we have 500 people holding us hostage in Washington. And I understand we have to talk about the mechanisms about how to address that, but, one, I think this harkens back to our first conversation about Kansas City, Missouri. I mean, this is exactly what faith leaders are supposed to do, be moral leaders and stand for the least of these, irrespective of their you know, respective religion, number one. But beyond that, the idea that we allow political jockeying to upset the idea that, you know, we still have large percentage of our population that doesn't have what it needs and is working every day and not making a livable wage. It should make all of us sick. So I think we need to have a systemic conversation about us as citizens and allowing these representatives to hold us hostage. The fact that we should have to beg for basic things is abhorrent in a country that touts itself as one the wealthiest country in the world and one that is guided by rights and a respect thereof. And I, it just makes me sick that we have to hope that they come around to vote the right way. It should be we get what we need. Period. Well,
4: but this is why I I, I, I think about what uh, a Philip Randolph uh, had to do when uh, he was uh, mm-hmm. at the White House and he was um, he was uh, uh, challenged uh, when President. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was challenged by yep. A. Philip Randolph, and he mm-hmm. said, "You know, Philip, make me do it." And he was like, "Okay, I got something for your ass." And when he threatened to bring 200,000 people to the nation's capital, uh, FDR right. signed an executive order. But see, yep. that see, this is this is what I'm talking about when, when, when we are talking about how we use our power. And uh, and I, let me see, did I take the picture of it? Let me see if I did, because I was this more, matter of fact, I. I'm glad I did, because I was, uh, I, y'all often hear me talk about uh, Chaos or Community, um, Dr. King's uh, book, which, which really is uh, one of the most important uh, books. Everybody should have a copy of it. Uh, and and one of the things that uh, you often hear me refer to uh, uh, when, I, when I'm talking um, in my speeches on this show, uh, I'm referencing this particular section Uh, of the book uh, where he's uh, talking about uh, black leadership, where he's talking about uh, what needs to happen. And uh, this is what King writes in the book. He says, uh, there are already structured forces in the Negro community that can serve as the basis for building a powerful united front. The Negro church, the Negro press, Mm -hmm. the Negro fraternities and sororities, and negro professional associations we must admit that these forces have never given their full resources to the cause of negro liberation there are still too many negro churches that they condition their members to adjust to the present evils over here too many negro newspapers have veered away from their traditional role as protest organs agitating for social change, and have turned to the sensational and the conservative in place of the substantive and the militant. Uh, He says, too many Negro social and professional groups have degenerated into snobbishness and a preoccupation with frivolities and trivial activity. But the failures of the past must not be an excuse for the inaction of the present and the future. These groups must be mobilized and motivated. And on that particular point, that's what I'm talking about, folks. And so right. you heard me say on numerous times, you've got more than 2 million members of the divine Nine. So you You've got alphas uh, and uh kappas and omegas and sigmas and iotas and deltas and AKAs and zetas and sigma gamma rho. You've got uh, Eastern Star. You've got Prince Hall Mason. You got Sigma Pi Phi fraternity. Mm-hmm. The Boule. You've got the Lynx, You got all these different groups. But the question is, how are they using that the collective membership to be able to sort of drive this issue? And this is where I believe that uh, when you begin to have not just the leaders. See, I'm not interested. In the leaders' meeting at the White House. I'm not interested in the leaders' meeting with President Biden or President Joe Biden. What I'm interested in is them coming back and pressing that button, saying to every member, I want you to send an email to your House member, send this to corporations. How do you take that collective power to be able to advance the black collective? But unfortunately, too many of our organizations are concerned about their own internal politics and their own meetings internally, as opposed to how do you begin to advance and change things for the black community. And so I would hope that they would use their power to listen to do what Reverend Barber has been talking about, to do what others have been talking about, and that is to be able uh, to affect this change. And in fact, I was, I w- when I was, uh, I showed you that tweet earlier. Uh, from Dr. Barber, and one of the things uh, that he uh, posted, uh, and this is what he posted here he said the Poor People's Campaign, uh, they are organizing uh, to reach 5 million p- poor and low wage people and low propensity voters across the nation. Our votes are demands. Folks, numbers don't lie. When you're able to reach those low propensity voters, you can change whole elections, and that's how groups must be using uh, their power. When we come back, we're gonna talk about uh, Elijah McClain, the results of his autopsy, also a cop in suburban Chicago who has been charged with the murder of a black man and the DOJ indicting a white man for burning a cross in Mississippi. All of that is next right here on Roland Martin Unfiltered on the Black Star Network. Please download the Black Star Network app all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV, also, please join our Bring the Funk fan club. Your dollars make it possible for us to do what we do, uh, PO Box 57196, Washington DC, 20037-0196. Cash App is dollar sign RM Unfiltered, PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered, Venmo is RM uh, Unfiltered, Zelle is rolling at RolandSMartin.com, Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. And don't forget to get your copy of my book, White Fear. How The Browning of America is making white folks lose their minds. Uh, Folks, I speak to the issues we talk about all all the time, lay out the historical realities of what's going on. Uh, And here is a quote uh, from... Reverend Barbara, on this issue, fear is at the root of almost every injustice fear of the other, fear that is created by false assumptions, or fear created by a desire for power. Roland Martin's book addresses a particular kind of fear that has been both the backdrop and forefront of racism in this country. This is an important read for all people, regardless of your race and color. Understand white fear so you can release and resist it. If you want to get your copy, you can download a copy on audible available on their platform you can also get your copy uh, from the publisher ben bella books books amazon Barnes genoble indie bound bookshop chapters books a million target or order it from your favorite black bookstore i'll be right back
12: we all shine together we are black beyond measure I
15: remember being with The View when they said, we want to extend your contract. And I knew, God said, it's time to move. It's time to go. And everybody was saying, Sherry, you got a great job. You're making all of this money. And I said, no, it's time. And they said, you ain't going to be able to, you've been away from Hollywood. And I said, it's time to go. And when I did it, right. that's when I realized I was about to go through this divorce and I was gonna it was going to be expensive, it was going to be a lot. And I said, I'm going to stay. I said, I'm going to stay for a couple of years. So you make this money. See, go ahead. I'm going to make this money and then I'll get out lower. So I didn't do a compromise. I'm going to do what you say, but I'm going I'm to do it on my thing. And he went, really? He went, really? And you know when he went really? They said that we were heavy in in contract negotiations. And they came, a manager called, she said, they're not gonna uh, renew your contract. And I went, hey, so wait, what, so what? He, just yesterday, they was offering me more money. She said, they just decided not to renew your contract. And I remember sitting in front of the mirror at the view and I went, what happened? And it was very clear. God said, I told you it was time to go.
12: in ourselves. We're investing in what's next for all of us. Growing. Creating. Making moves. That move us all forward. Together, we are Black Beyond Measure.
1: Next on The Black Table, with me, Craig Carr. Immigrants lured off Texas streets and shipped to places like Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C. Believe it or not, We've seen it all before. You people in the North, you're so sympathetic to black people, you take them. 60 years ago, they called it the reverse freedom rides. Back then, Southern governors shipped black people North with the false promise of jobs and a better life. It's a part of a well-known playbook being brought back to life. So what's next? That's next on The Black Table, a conversation with Dr. Gerald Horn about this issue of the reverse freedom rides, right here on the Black Star Network.
11: Hey, yo, peace world. What's going on? It's the love king of R&B, Raheem Devon. Hey, I'm Cubit, the maker of the Cupid shuffle and the wham dance. What's going on? This
1: is Tobias Trevillian. And if you're ready, you are listening to and you are watching Roland Martin unfiltered. <laughs>
4: in Colorado the autopsy of a black man who died at the police of a police encounter uh, in the Denver suburb uh, three years ago now says the cause of death was due to potent sedatives that were injected into him Elijah McClain died after being forcibly restrained and injected with ketamine after being stopped by police in Aurora for being suspicious the original autopsy report of the 23 year old was written soon after his death and did not conclude how he died or what type of death it was, such as if it was natural, accidental, or a homicide. That was a significant reason why prosecutors initially decided not to pursue charges against the cops and the EMT officials. Last year, a state grand jury indicted three officers and two paramedics on manslaughter and reckless homicide charges in McClain's death after the case drew renewed national attention following the killing of George Floyd in 2020. Now we see exactly what caused the death and folks were still saying, why was he even injected in the first place? Now let's go to, uh, uh, to Illinois, where a former suburban Chicago cop uh, fired after he shot into a car killing a black man and seriously wounding the man's girlfriend has been indicted. Former Waukegan police officer Dante Salinas is charged with second-degree murder and involuntary manslaughter related to the October 20th incident. Salinas was indicted. First of all, October 20th, 2021 incident. Uh, Salinas was also indicted on felony counts of aggravated battery causing great bodily harm and official misconduct. Officer James Keating pulled over 19-year-old Marcellus Stenet and his girlfriend, Tafara Williams. The officer told the couple Stenet had an outstanding warrant and he was going to be arrested. The couple fled the scene. Officer Keating called for help and Salinas responded. Salinas located the pair and pulled them over. He then fired the shots just 12 seconds after walking up to the vehicle. Stenet was a passenger and Williams wasn't driving. Salinas was fired three days after the shooting. Uh, For multiple policy violations during the incident, including failing to activate his body-worn camera until after the shooting Salinas is also facing charges for using excessive force while arresting a man at a family baptism in 2019 Let's go to Mississippi, folks, where a Gulfport, Mississippi man has faces more than 20 years in prison and thousands of dollars in fines if convicted of a hate crime. Axel C. Cox, 23 years old, has been indicted on federal charges of criminal interference with the right to fair housing and using fire to commit a federal felony. Authorities on December 3rd, 2020, say Cox burned a cross in his front yard and used threatening and racially derogatory comments toward his black neighbors to intimidate them. It's suspected that cops chose to burn the cross because of the victim's race. See, this, this, this right here, Matt, is, is, is what I keep telling people. One, when I wrote the book White Fear, uh, what's going on here, these reactions that we're seeing. And this is why you have to have aggressive action. Now, it's amazing how the previous two stories, we see aggressive police, aggressive law enforcement... Uh, when it comes to folks being pulled over, you've got to have aggressive prosecution of these racists and these bigots to send the signal, you do wrong, we are going to put your
9: behind in prison. Absolutely. You absolutely have to have it. You have to swing for the fences on sentences, and you have to make sure that, especially where it's the most blatant and the most obvious, because a lot of what we talk about on this show, Roland, is somebody says something horrible that we all know is racist, but they try to do it in a nebulous way or they're kind of, you know, they, they couch it in certain terms. Burning a cross is per se clear. Everybody in the United States of America knows exactly what you intend to communicate as a message with that action. And the reason that's important is the prosecutor has irrefutable evidence as to what this guy intended to do. With that, she should be able to stand up in front of a jury and say whatever the maximum penalty is, he needs to get because we cannot countenance this this in our society, and when we have evidence like this, we gotta throw the book out. So, I agree with you completely.
4: Um, Brianna, again, uh, it's amazing when you look at uh, these statements that we get nearly every week now from the Department of Justice, almost every day of actions being taken. When you see the brutality that's happening in state prisons, largely against Black and Latino uh, folks uh, here, this is the reality of what it means to be black uh, and minority in this country, where we still are dealing with brutality against black folks and other people of color.
10: Absolutely. As it was stated, when there's this much evidence, we need to throw the book at them. Um, It's done over and over and over again, excuses. Um, We have vigilantes in the streets that we try to get away. we say that we're OK with the death penalty and they can kill us um, and they want to bring back, you know, the crosses. And so, well, it never went away, but they want to have the crosses of the lawn and think that's OK. Um, and honestly, there needs to be just as drastic measure and in dealing with these officers and in, in these issues, whether it's a firing squad, whether you know it's it locking them up or not locking them up, which is what usually happens, is not enough. Um, I do think that we see this over and over and over again, because there hasn't been enough um, strict policy uniformity um, for it to keep occurring. Um, the same thing should happen no matter what, especially when it's enough evidence, and it should be so grave they won't want to do it again.
4: Uh, And, again, you know, know, Michael, we we talk about this all the time. Elections Mm -hmm. matter. This is a perfect example why you've got to have, uh, you know, we talk about aggressiveness, aggressive action from a DOJ civil rights division, aggressive action when it comes to the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, You have, in many cases, Republicans, they want laissez-faire. Oh, we don't want all this over-regulation. Oh, we don't don't want any (laughs) of this sort of stuff happening. Well, say to the people who are on the receiving end of this blatant racism and bigotry.
11: Well, criminals usually don't want regulation so they can get away with what they are, are doing, OK? Uh, when you look at, you know, Washington Post just published a, uh, an article dealing with this case, Mississippi man gets hate crime charge and cross burning. Uh, so what's really interesting here is when you look at this, number one, these are federal charges, as you stated. But two, the the law that they're filing the federal charges based upon is the Civil Rights Act of 1968 which within that, that was part of that Fair Housing Act in 1968 that you've talked about, we've talked about here on the show before, Roland, The there was a hate crimes act within that. That was the first, I want all the people who keep saying we need an anti-black federal bill or whatever the hell you say it is. Um, the first hate crimes act in the history of this country was passed in 1968 by President Lyndon Baines Johnson, and that was part of that Fair Housing Act. That was a result of the modern day civil rights movement. Okay, so when I when I hear people talk about the uh, miscall, they call it the Asian hate crime bill, which it was not. It was the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. You can go to Congress.gov and read it. That applies to African-Americans also. But you have to understand what the Department of Justice is doing is why the Department of Justice was founded in 1870 during Reconstruction. They were founded largely to enforce the rights of newly freed African-Americans and enforce, vote, enforce their voting rights. This is in the tradition of the Department of Justice. So once again, this is another example of how elections have
4: consequences, why we need to understand law and why we have to vote strategically as well. Uh, indeed, indeed. And so uh, you know, it's just, uh, again, I think when, when, when you look at these, these stories, of, uh, Matt, when you look at uh, the case of the officer firing, firing the shots, Again, you're on the scene for 12 seconds. 12 seconds. Okay, uh, a video was circulating this circulating this week of a white cop uh, pulling pulling a white person over, and boy, the, the the amount of restraint that was shown is stunning. And it it just happens over and over and over again. And then when you see these cross burnings, when you see these things happen uh, in in these states, when you see the DOJ indicting and prosecuting and convicting uh, wardens and corrections officers for brutalizing inmates, uh, folks need to understand uh, that there still are heinous individuals who have the power and the authority uh, to subjugate people and how they are abusing them and in many cases killing them.
9: Absolutely. And I think at least as to the first story that we had today in Kansas City, Missouri, what's really important for people to know is those DOJ patterns and practices um, investigations can yield indictments. I mean, that's what happened in Mm -hmm. Louisville in the Breonna Taylor situation. I know we've talked about those indictments here before. So for this DOJ to be aggressive and to be incisive in exactly what it's looking at and for that to yield, you know, criminal responsibility is very important, but what's particularly tragic about it is, one, it's so pervasive across the country that no matter where you go, you have these issues and you have these issues going on for decades before you have Kristen Clark and an aggressive DOJ stepping in. So I think we're going to see, you know, going forward, a lot of uh, like stories coming to light showing that these kinds of things have been going on forever Unavenged, And that's the, the real reality of it is, you know, we like to talk about civil rights, but it is so difficult to hold accountable these people as a private private citizen. I got today hmm. a notice of appeal in a very obvious case where they let my client's son die in jail by not giving him insulin for three days. That's absurd. Right. But I still have to fight that at the Fifth Circuit. But when it comes to DOJ, it's different because they're bringing uh, criminal actions based on civil rights violations, which makes it a prosecution. And that is one of the best ways to hold accountable people doing these heinous acts. So I'm glad to see Ms. Clark and her team are really you know, working as hard as they are because we're, we're better for it as Americans. And of course, uh, it was on this day
4: uh, in 1955 when an all-white jury acquitted the two white men for killing and lynching Emmett Till. Uh, of course, uh, that was a Roy Bryant and J.W. Milam. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I saw a couple of weeks ago, a couple of Thursdays ago, uh, the movie till, uh, when I, the New York screening with Whoopi Goldberg, uh, and, and I'll say this here and I fundamentally believe it. Uh, I don't give a damn how old Carolyn Bryant is. I don't give a damn how sick she is. Uh, she should be brought to justice, uh, and locked up. Uh, for her culpability in the murder, and the lynching of Emmett Till. Uh, And so if you can put Bill Cosby in prison, if you can put uh, old folks in prison who were Nazi guards, well, you damn sure can put uh, that racist uh, white woman, uh, Carolyn Bryant, in prison uh, for what she did with Emmett Till. And I ain't got no problem with her dying in prison, just like Byron Della Beckler died in prison. And so y'all can talk about forgive all you want to. Yeah, okay. Mm, Guess what, I don't forget. I don't forget. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, that has not been the case, but it actually should be the case. Folks, gonna go to a break. We come back. Uh, Apple Plus today debuts the Sydney Poitier documentary uh, called Sydney. It is an unbelievable doc. Uh, and I was there on Wednesday for the Los Angeles screening, and you'll hear from Reggie Hutland and oprah winfrey about it you're watching roland martin unfiltered on the black star network where we keep it real keep it black we cover the stories nobody else uh talks about uh if you want to support us in what we do please download our app the black star network app available on all platforms apple phone android phone apple tv android tv roku amazon fire tv xbox one samsung smart tv also please join our bring the funk fan club all of your dollars make it possible for us to do what we do. Uh, Cash app, excuse me, uh, you want to send a check of money order to uh, PO Box 57196, Washington DC, 20037-0196, um, of course, Cash App is Dallassan RM Unfiltered. PayPal is R Martin Unfiltered. Uh, Venmo is RM Unfiltered. Zelle is Roland at RolandSMartin.com. Roland at RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Child Today Day, 6AM, Day, Cheryl Brody, Leo Hackett, Robert, Annette Jones, Whitney, Celine Glover, uh, Zeno uh, Crooks, LaSharon Carter, uh, Esau, Antoinette Knoll, Raymond, uh, Ramon Adams, uh, Mauricia, uh, uh, Mauricia, let's see here, uh, Denise Wright, Timothy Williams, thank you for all of you. Uh, Cheryl Jackson, Vanessa Howard, Vincent Wright, Clifford Jones, and let me see here. Who else? Paul Martin, Crash, Vincent Porter, uh, Helen Smith, uh, Winston Freeman, thank all of you uh, so for, for supporting us uh, on Rolling Mark on the filter, I'll be right back.
12: When we invest in ourselves, our glow, our vision, our vibe, we all shine. Together, we are Black beyond measure.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Pastor-
15: Hi, y'all doing? It's your favorite funny girl, Amanda Seals. Hi,
19: I'm Anthony
4: Brown from Anthony Brown and Group Therapy. What up? Lana Well, and you are watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Wednesday, I was in Los Angeles for the screening of the Apple uh, Films documentary on the great Sidney Poitier, the longtime friend of this man, uh, Harry Belafonte. He's actually uh, in Doc as well. It tells uh, the the amazing story uh, of Sidney Poitier's life, all the stuff that he had to endure. Uh, Here is the trailer.
19: I didn't know there was such a thing as electricity or that water could come into the house through a pipe. I never thought about what I looked like. I didn't know what a mirror was. When you grow up in a community
7: where everything you know is powerful and good and it's black, there's no concept of race that defines saint Poitier. I left the Bahamas with this sense
1: of myself. And from the time I got off the boat, America began to say to me, you're not who you think you are. I'm a
19: black man in a the white world. There was a habit in Hollywood of utilizing blacks in the most disrespectful ways. And I said, I cannot play
13: that. I don't think Sidney ever played a subservient part. Never bucked his eyes, never ducked his head.
19: They call me Mr. Tibbs. I'm a black man
7: in a white world. I'm a black man in a white
12: world. It was the first time I had seen a black man assert his power.
19: I'm a giant and I'm surrounded by ants.
2: I wanted to marry Sidney Poitier. He was like, wow, movie stars should be wow.
7: Biggest box office draw, black man, 1967-68. And the whole country is
4: spiraling around him. We're hanging together by a few cultural threads. And Sidney Poitier is one
13: of those cultural threads.
16: The winner is Sidney Poitier.
11: It's not easy being the first when you have to represent the entire race.
19: He had big shoulders, he was given big shoulders, but he had to carry a lot of weight. If there were equality of opportunity in this business, there'd be 15 Sidney Poitiers and 10 or 12 Belafantes. But there or is maybe not. the other way around. Watch Belafontes. it, watch it,
13: watch it. Ah! He's going to put black
11: people in positions where they can have a career behind the camera.
1: He came to this earth to move it, to change it, to shake it. You think of yourself
19: as a colored man. I think of myself as a man. That's the summary of
7: him.
19: I love him so much. My life has had more than a few wonderful, indescribable turns.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I have lived them.
4: It really is uh, an incredible documentary. And one of the things that was interesting. Um, and it deals with how some people perceived him, talked about how he was, you know, uh, people called him an Uncle Tom. He was making white folks feel good with his movie roles. Uh, but that was a news conference that took place where let's just say he was not too particularly happy with a questioning that came from the media on the issue of race and the riots. Uh, this is also Sidney Poitier.
3: What do you feel Ralph
19: Brown's purpose is now? I figured that question would come. I am not familiar with all of Mr. Brown's methods, except that Mr. Brown suggests violence. Well, I am, as uh, by definition, in opposition to violence, particularly violence for violence's sake. Do you think the urban riots have affected government? I would say that the urban riots have had effects in uh, every corner. Of the country and in every arena of life Uh, I would like to ask you a question why is it that you guys are hounds for bad news why is it that uh, you know it seems to me that at this moment this day you could ask me many questions about many positive and wonderful things that are happening in this country but we gather here to pay court sensationalism. We gather here to pay court to negativism. You guys have a job to do. Uh, I'm a relatively intelligent man. There are many aspects to my personality that you can explore, I think, uh, very uh, constructively. But you sit here and ask me such one-dimensional questions about a very tiny area. Of our lives. You ask me questions that fall continually within the Negro-ness of my life. You ask me questions that pertain to the narrow scope of the summer riots. I am artist, man, American, contemporary. I am an awful lot of things so I wish you would uh, pay me the respect due. And not simply ask me about those things.
4: That is what we call a read. Um, uh, great job there. Uh, as I said, folks, uh, the movie, excuse me, the documentary is uh, produced, executive produced by Oprah Winfrey, executive produced and directed by uh, my buddy Reggie Hutland. And on Wednesday, before uh, they show the doc, uh, they actually address the audience there.
6: Out. Uh, and thanks to the Academy Museum. And if you have not visited the Academy Museum, please do. It's an extraordinary space. Uh, I'm here with my colleagues on this film, Derek Murray, who, uh, of Network Entertainment, who called and said, did you want to do a movie about City Poitier? So I think he got to the P in Portier.
10: Yes!
6: (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I did the smartest thing I could ever do uh, for a project like this. I said, let's call Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) You take it. That's it. I can't top mentioning your name. No. Look, we're here out of love. This is uh, uh, we love Sydney Poitier. We love what he represented for us individually. We love what he did for the planet. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, this is this movie's for a, a lot of people. It's me attempting to pay back what he did for me, because if not for Sidney Portier, I'm not standing here. I'm certainly not standing here, yes. And let's be real, none of y'all are here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's also for my children, who my wife and kids are here and they have not seen the movie yet.
7: I'm like, how is that possible? It's just
6: daddy stuff. Oh. They have no interest. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. Um, and because we want to make sure that our titans, our heroes, are remembered for generation after generation after generation. Yeah. And speaking of titans and heroes, I'm going to pass the mic to Miss Oprah Winfrey.
0: Say a few
7: words. Yeah, say something before I speak. All right. right. (laughs)
0: No pressure at all, right? (laughs) Zero pressure. I think it's actually important to say uh, that this project started right back in 2018. Mm -hmm. It started with the full support of Sydney and Joanna and the family and embraced uh, the concept of bringing this project to life. It was long overdue, right? It was long overdue. So it started in 2018, and four years later, here we are together. This is epic.
7: Well, when I got the call, I, I couldn't say yes fast enough, so thank you so very much for the call. I want to thank uh, John Sinclair, who's here tonight, who is a part of my team at OWN. John Sinclair and I had done a two-day interview with Sidney Poitier for OWN. And those eight hours uh, became a part of the grounding field for this documentary. I also want to thank Terry Wood, and I want to thank Catherine Orr. Thank you so much as my colleagues on this film. Thank you so much. Appreciate uh, all of the many looks and all the, the, the attention to detail that has gone into this film. I believe love is in the details. And as Reginald said, this is an act of love. I have loved him since I was 10 years old and uh to be able to be a part of sharing our vision of how we see him and allowing the rest of the world to to see him as we see him is our offering and you are one of the first uh, toronto was the first but you are one of the first audiences to see him uh we have not publicly mourned him yet. Our country has not publicly mourned him. There has not been a public memorial service for him. So this film, in many ways, is its memorial and celebration of his life. And, you know, all of the extraordinary things that he did, the thing that was most important to him was Becoming the measure of a man that his father intended for him and that's why his second autobiography was called the measure of a man and his father had said to him that the measure of a man is how well you take care of your family and that is the thing he treasured the most his family we know him as actor and legend and so the thing that he loved most about himself was that he was a father to these daughters Pamela Anika Sydney Sherry, and Beverly. Oh.
18: The appropriate sister
7: daughters. Oh. Sydney, Sherry, Beverly. I'm gonna let you speak for all the sisters and all the daughters. What does this moment mean to you and the family? It's a great moment, great moment for us to be mm-hmm. here and um, share the film with you. I appreciate all the energy and love that everybody is giving us. I wanted to say a couple things. One, many people confuse the characters actors play with the actual person. In my father's case, he chose roles that reflected his values. So my sisters and I are very proud of him and his commitment to leave the world better than he found it. So to honor him, I would like to ask each of you to lead the world better than you find it.
15: Beautiful. Enjoy the film.
5: Enjoy the film, everybody. Thank you so much.
4: Um, it, it really is extraordinary. I, I want to start. Uh, I'll start with you, Michael. The thing that I, I, what Reggie Hutland said, I think is important. We talked about how we have to uh, honor our giants. Uh, when Oprah mm-hmm. said there has been no public memorial, that was one of the you know we did uh, an extensive tribute uh, to Sidney Poitier. I think over a couple of days uh, on our show, mm-hmm. and that's one of the reasons why. Because you know I, I was actually uh, greatly offended, if you will. Uh, Granted, he had been retired for 20 plus years uh, with the type of coverage or the lack thereof really uh, focusing on uh, his legacy uh, in his career uh, from mainstream media, which is why, uh, as as Reggie said, uh, we have to tell our own stories.
11: Absolutely. Power is the ability to define and shape reality and have other people accept your definition of reality as if it were their own, as one of our great African-centered scholars, Dr. Wade Noble says. Um, I I did a tribute to Sidney Poitier on the African History Network show. Uh, I remember going to the movies with my parents in the 1970s, seeing the Bill Cosby, Sydney Poitier movies. We went to the drive in. I was sitting in the back seat. I remember a piece of the action in Uptown Saturday Night, um, and in uh, a piece of the action, that was Cheryl Lee Ralph's first acting role. She was one of the uh, teenage delinquent students uh, in the uh, youth program. Uh, so you have uh, Uptown Saturday Night, a piece of the action, and let's do it again. And then I remember seeing seeing on television uh, in the 1970s. uh, I remember seeing um, In the Heat of the Night, where he was a uh, homicide detective from Philadelphia, and uh, Rod Steiger was the uh, police chief. And I remember my dad explaining to me, because my dad's family's from Mississippi, and I remember my dad explaining to me about racism in Mississippi and how significant that movie was. And he had three big movies in 67. Uh, In the Heat of the Night, uh, he had um, uh, guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and then uh, the other third movie, I can't remember the third movie that he had in 67, but that was, like, his breakout year. He had uh, three big movies in 1967. So he's definitely missed. Um, he's a giant. He inspired so many, is countless, um, and, you know, we we need more like him. He was an activist, active in the civil rights movement. Uh, and we we need more like them as well. So I, I'm going to check out this documentary.
4: <laughs> the thing here, Brianna, that uh, that I, for me, that that has to be talked about is that uh, I think that this was the case then, but I also I think we still see it now. Well, you got some black folks who don't understand lanes, um, and you have folks who were oh, they didn't like the roles that he played and and he was too subservient and he he made white folks feel too good and too happy. I mean, we we still hear those things. And I think part of this is not understanding that one, not everybody does the same thing. Not everybody is an activist, can be an activist. Not everybody should be an activist. Uh, And so when we look at African-Americans, we look at folks in our totality, how we all are contributing, the reality is and the doc talks about it, Uh, Sidney Poitier uh, made sure that he had hundreds of black people who were working on his films. When he transitioned from an actor to a director, that's what he did. You talk Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby is the reason there's a black stuntman's association. He said, I'm not gonna have somebody white uh, with shoe polish on their face uh, as my stuntman. He said, ain't no show unless y'all go hire somebody black. And so that's the thing that, that people have to understand. It, so Cosby wasn't Dick Gregory, but Dick Gregory right. wasn't Cosby, but folks played different roles and served different purposes.
10: Yes, absolutely. And I love to see, um, especially this year more than ever, the end of this year um, with Women King coming out as well and other documentaries, um, we had the um, Dr. Mary McCall Buffoon um, statue showing and more documentaries coming from her. Um, I love to see the overlay of arts and social action. Um, It's a beautiful thing that we're showing our community now. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Talk about a little bit more of the name we're not allowed to say on this show. He showed that he is not that, right? His life shows that what he was about was standing up for himself. And that slap that he gave back, was everything made me happy and so yeah we do need a little bit more of him but you know do onto others as you want to be done and when you do that to me this is what you're going to get back and so i'm glad that he was able to have a life to stand up for himself and help so many other people and i'm excited to see this documentary soon
4: uh matt uh last point here um you know the you know sydney portier died january 6th of this year uh and uh 94 years old was turning 95 in a couple of months he and Harry Belafonte, their birthdays are literally nine days apart, uh, and uh, the doc talked about their relationship and how it is highs and its lows, and how they literally uh, were were linked. It was uh, Sidney Poitier got his start because uh, he was the understudy to Harry Belafonte uh, uh, in the in the uh, Negro uh, the Negro Ensemble Theater, and he was uh, and what happened was. Uh, he had to work that night. He had his janitor's job. And the night that Sidney Poitier filled in for him, it was a Broadway uh, director who was in the audience uh, and that's how he was cast. Uh, and so uh, his career took off because of that. Uh, then the funny part, which I did not, would not realize, um, Harry Belafonte turned down the role in Lilies of the Field. Uh, he felt it was a horrible, a horrible script. And he said, and how Sidney took it, and how he put his touch on it, and that's how he wins the Academy Award. Uh, and so, uh, it just, it, 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 but it just really tells you, it doesn't focus on those two, and in fact, I'll tell you right now, um, it, it would be one hell of a documentary. I'm almost sitting Reggie, this text. It would be a hell of a documentary, literally a doc that focuses exclusively on Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte, uh, and that relationship uh, and how it was so intertwined. Uh, what's your thoughts, Matt?
9: My, my thoughts are that you know, one, that's our natural aesthetic as as Black people, as Africans, as Africans in America. My opinion, number one. Number two, I think we have that onus on us always. Um, you know, that's a beautiful, a beautiful story born from necessity, but one that shows that, you know, luminaries recognized the necessity of banding together and making sure that they put each other on and they checked in and they were with each other as they walked that journey. So what I would say is instructive to us as, as people, as contemporaries now, is to make sure we always do that in every respect. And I think you say that a lot here on the show. But, you know, it's a beautiful thing that to think that the same thing we do as black professionals, as black people in any, any respect, they are doing at the highest levels of of entertainment and, and the longevity to their lives as well, that we've had them here, you know, as giants um, as long as we have. And one thing I wanted to say, too, I know there wasn't a public memorial, but I think sometimes we put way too much emphasis on that. Who cares if there's a public memorial when we know the stature of this giant and we are able to give the appropriate... Uh, Memorial. I mean, there should be. Don't get me wrong, but what they meant to us and what he meant to us is is something that we yeah I, uh, have not allowed to to lose its import. And well, oh, well,
4: I agree. I, but I think I think the reason I think what Oprah was saying was um, by not having a public memorial, you didn't have the sort of the center of attention uh, on Sidney Poitier, his life and his career, what he meant. And so the documentary sort of serves as that purpose. But that's also again why. Uh, on this show, we don't wait uh, for mainstream media uh, to, to show appreciation uh, for uh, our, uh, our icons. That's why we do that with our immemoriums, We do that with our our or two hour tributes as well uh, because uh, we saw it during COVID uh, when there were not public memorials or in funerals, when um, uh, when uh, Reverend C.T. Vivian passed away, when you had Reverend Dr. Joseph Lowry who passed away, uh, you know, there was no public uh, funeral for Reverend Lowry, uh, and but we ensured, made sure that we paid tribute to him. Same thing uh, when Earl Graves passed away. The public memorial really was uh, several months, a few months ago at, at Morgan State uh, for him as well. And so... Um, so she's absolutely right. But again, this is why Black-Owned Media Matters, because it's about right. us not waiting for someone else uh, to tell our story. And so uh, this documentary took four years uh, to put together. Uh, and so, uh, but we wanted to make sure that we honored him uh, in due time. Uh, and I, I was talking to uh, uh, Ridge and I was sharing the story, and I was talking to uh, Steve McKeever and others um, about Sidney Poitier, and I actually happened uh, to run into someone who worked with him, uh, and she said, "You know, uh, we talk about, talk about you all the time because what happened was, we were so one the first time. So there were, were three different occasions I got a chance to meet uh, Sidney Portier and talk with him. Uh, and uh, the first time was when uh, Ben Ben uh, Jealous told me that Harry Belafonte and Sidney Portier were going to be presenting at the SCP Image Awards, uh, and I said, said, well, 'Why, absolutely.'" Uh, have got to uh, got to meet him and uh, I called mr. B and he said he said you hadn't met Sydney I'm like, no I had not uh, and so so I go backstage and, and so, so so when they present they both come out and, and everyone stands up everyone in the audience stands up and they're applauding well that's when I got up and went backstage because typically at those award shows you know they bounce out as, soon as they walk off the stage and so I'm waiting backstage for them to finish and they come out uh, and Mr. B introduces me, uh, and uh, I said, "You know, Mr. Portier, good to meet you." He goes, "We've met before," and I'm like, "No, when when you met before?" He said, "Oh, yes, we have." He said, "I know you through television," <laughs> and so we and, and so, he, so he begins he begins to uh, to talk about. Uh, uh, appreciating my work on television. And so I'm standing there like, hold up, I'm, hold up, I'm, I'm supposed to be appreciating your work. Uh, and so we had some good laughs backstage, uh, and then we took pictures, uh, took a bunch of pictures as well. But then the next time, the next time at Image Awards, uh, they were honoring Mr. B, and Sydney Poitier presented him the award. So again, I go backstage, uh, we're taking pictures, and we're walking, and all of a sudden, He stumbles, he literally stumbles, um, and I catch him, and then I hold him up, and I brace him, and I walk him uh, outside uh, to his person, and they hand him, place him in the car. So probably about about three, four weeks later, all of a sudden, my phone is blowing up, TV One has called me saying, "Uh, Roland, uh, Sidney Poitier's trying to reach you, and I'm like, all right, give him my phone number. Uh, and, uh, and so people are calling around the network, and I'm like, y'all, just give him, man my number. And so I said, I, 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 you know, just give me his numbers. I went ahead, called his office, uh, and he wanted to thank me for catching him because he had had surgery a few weeks earlier for his heart, uh, and uh, he lost his balance, and he was telling me about uh, what he had gone through. But then he began, and i never forget, I was at my brother's house in Houston. Uh, and then he began to talk about my work. Um, and begin to tell me. He said uh, one of the lines. He said he said I he said there is no backup in you. And so as he's talking, I mean, first you're sitting there, you like, oh look, Sidney Poitier is saying this about me. And so I, I mean, I'm literally about to just start breaking down. And so I said, no, I, so I did go into what we call reporters' mode. So when you cover the news for so long, you literally go into a space where you completely just drain yourself of all emotion because you're trying to focus on a story. And that was the only way I was going to keep it together. So I began to just, I just I opened my laptop and I just started typing what he had to say. Uh, and, um, and when we did the tribute show, I actually revealed uh, what he, I read all of what he had to say because I kept those notes. Uh, but it was just, it was just amazing to listen to, listen to him. And because again, you don't, you don't assume someone watches you and, and knows what you do. Uh, but to listen to him talk about how I operate in my work Uh, And how I don't back down from anyone uh, certainly just blew me away uh, that Sidney Poitier had those uh, things to say, Uh, and uh, it was just it was a great it was a great conversation. And the last time was when we were at uh, Oprah's house for the uh, the the civil rights. um, leaders uh, for, their, for her Legends Ball and they had the uh, brunch on that Sunday uh, and I saw him had this huge smile on his face and he just sort of grabs me and gives me a big hug uh, and we take a picture and so he I mean and anytime you walk in the presence of Sidney Poitier it literally, it literally was like walking in the presence of a king or a queen Th- that was literally how people would approach him uh, sort of, uh, you know, with reverence, uh, and there are very few people, I would say certainly uh, Sidney Poitier, Cicely Tyson, I mean, you know, there are very few people who command that level of respect, and that certainly was how folks in Hollywood viewed him, uh, and, um, uh, and so it's, I really hope folks watch this. Unfortunately. It's only on Apple Plus, but for a week, it's gonna be in theaters. Uh, There was a, uh, they they sent it out, Reggie Hutland posted this, Uh, do y'all have where? Because is it it nationwide? I know Reggie posted it, uh, and he mentioned um, uh, where. I'm not sure, Uh, let's see here. Um, It's the uh, LaMelle. Theaters. I don't know what. Actually, they're in LA, so I don't know if this is only going to be in Los Angeles, but um, but it is in theaters. Um, it's L A E M M L E dot com. dot uh, com. Um, it says forward slash film forward slash Sydney. And it says one week only for September 23rd, to September 29th, it will be in theaters. Uh, I wish it wasn't just uh, at that movie theater, uh, but it is is available on Apple Plus. And so, no folks, not not Netflix, not Hulu, not Peacock, not all those (laughs) streaming services. Apple Plus is a separate streaming service. Uh, And so check that out. And then, and if you do, and I know some of y'all might do, y'all might just get Apple Plus for a month, it's all good. First of all, if you have bought, let me help y'all out. I think they're still offering, if you bought an Apple phone or an iPad in the, in the last year, you get Apple Apple Plus for free for a whole year. Uh, so one, double check that. But if, you, if y'all do buy for one month just to watch the Sydney Poitier doc, also watch that movie The Banker with Samuel L. Jackson, mm-hmm. Anthony Mackie, a true story, uh, two black men who were real estate visionaries in the 60s, uh, but Jim Crow uh, sent them to prison. Uh, they literally could have been uh, with that, if Jim Crow hadn't gotten in the way, they probably could have created one of the country's largest real estate empires, not black, real estate, period, if Jim Crow wouldn't let them. So that's another movie that was done by, financed by Apple Films. It's on Apple Plus, phenomenal movie, uh, and so hope you all check it out. Uh, Michael, Brianna, and back. we appreciate y'all joining us on the show today. Thank you so very much. Thank you to everybody who actually watched the show today, who contributed as well. Thank you so very much. Don't forget, tomorrow... We're going to be broadcasting live from Warren County, North Carolina, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, They're opening up a regional office there. We're going to be broadcasting that event. I'll be there on the ground. So we will see you all tomorrow from uh, 1 to 3. We'll be live live streaming from 1 to 3 p.m. in Warren County, North Carolina. Uh, So that is tomorrow. Uh, All right, folks, uh, that is it. Uh, For me, uh, I hope uh, y'all have a great weekend. Don't forget, download the Black Star Network app, all platforms, Apple phone, Android phone, Apple TV, Android TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Xbox One, Samsung Smart TV, and of course, uh, you can contribute to our Bring the Funk fan club, uh, PO Box check and money orders to go PO Box 5 7196 Washington DC 20037 0196 Cash App dollar sign RM unfiltered PayPal's R Martin unfiltered Venmo's RM unfiltered Zell is rolling at rollingsmartin.com. rolling at Unfiltered.com. We always in the show on Fridays with all of our contributors. If you don't see your name, send us an email. We'll add to the list. I'll see you on Monday. Holla!